Our next speaker is Dr. Melanie Archer. She's a medical doctor currently training in pathology. She also has a PhD in forensic entomology and has been the consultant forensic entomologist to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine for 16 years. Please welcome Dr. Melanie Archer. I'm a little bit too short for this, but I'll stand on my tippy toes. So I've always been very impressed by scientists who've experimented on themselves. Um, and I think that um, experimenting on yourself um, and enduring mental and physical pain uh, is the best way to prove an actual commitment to your work. And um, essentially, you can't do so much of this anymore. Um, and I'd argue that a lot of the fun has gone out of science. Um, by way of the commitment. <laughs> um, so I'm going to tell you today about uh, a bit of a hero of mine, Dr. Justin Schmidt. And uh, he's from the University of Arizona, um, and he's an entomologist who specialises in insect venoms and stinging behaviour. So we're going to continue the venom theme a little bit here. Um, now, back in the 1980s, this guy got uh, quite well known for developing a pain scale with five categories. Uh, where he was actually scoring the pain inflicted by the stings of 78 insect species uh, via personal experience. He has actually been stung by over 150 different species um, of multiple genera um, for variety and uh, sometimes several times by the same species. And, uh, I applaud his respect for the concept of sample size, although I would, <laughs> I would, I would have to offer the mild criticism of pseudo-replication here, but don't get me wrong, I am not volunteering to become an independent um, sample point in his study. Um, my PhD supervisor was very heavily uh, statistically oriented and would have shat kittens over this experimental design, but... <laughs> Nonetheless, I don't think anybody wants to be involved in, in this research. So we'll let that one pass. Um, Schmidt was actually aiming to use his scale for serious reasons, um, which I'm going to totally gloss over. I'm actually going to use my time to make fun of this work um, and, <laughs> and, and ignore the um, subtle and very beautiful um, and fascinating, meaningful work that Schmidt's done. I'm just going to make fun of it. Um, but, he, but he was looking at, just to, to give a couple of cursory intellectual sentences, he was, he was looking at whether um, sting toxicity, um, so your physiological response to being stung, actually correlates with the pain that's inflicted because we're looking at, um, in evolutionary terms, um, we're looking at uh, communication between the stinger and the stingy, if you like, and... Um, we're looking at concepts here to do with false advertising. So for example, if you're stung, but it doesn't do that much to you, well, you may just go back for more if the reward's great enough. And an example of that would be, uh, say, bears raiding a hive for honey, um, where they can get used to the stings. And there are quite a few examples anyway of where um, animals can actually get used to being stung because the reward um, of raiding a hive might actually be greater. Um, and the arguments of, of people studying this are that, in fact, perhaps the toxicity has to escalate in order to, to match the threat, so you've got some more truth in, in advertising, as it were. So that's the serious side. The other thing um, that he was looking at was just some kind of objective measure of, of actually how 
effective the sting of a given species is as a deterrent. Um, it's really fascinating stuff. Um, it really honestly is. But this is actually a great example of self-experimentation, which is, which is a theme that I just love a lot. Um, although apparently he didn't enter this um, whole project deliberately, it just happened in the course of his serious work, which involved a lot of collecting of the species that he was looking at. Um, he was just being stung very frequently while he was catching these critters, and he just thought, why let good data go to waste, as, as I think we, we, all, we all often... Some of our best papers perhaps come from that, that place. So despite what he's done to himself, you'll, you'll actually be surprised to hear that he's still publishing. He's still alive. He's, um, he had a paper out in, this year, um, and I think this is the best way to tell whether a scientist is still alive, because we all know that they either publish or perish. So <laughs> um, the scale I'm going to read for you is as follows. So zero, um, the sting doesn't even penetrate the skin. Um, you can hardly feel anything. You, it's, it's just, it's a nothing experience. So one's a sharp prick. Um, not a serious deterrent, though, to continuing to annoy the creature that you're attempting to, to annoy. Um, two is more painful. Makes you hesitate, but the pain doesn't last very long, mere minutes. Um, and just so you can get some internal correlation going here, the honeybee is a level two, and we've probably all been stung by the honeybee. Um, three is obviously more painful again, and it can perhaps have a longer duration, although duration doesn't seem to necessarily be the rule here. Um, four is, of course, the most painful of all. So it's a five-point scale, remember, starting at zero. So four is the top, most painful of all. And there's just a handful of special species that this is actually reserved for, and you do not want to meet them. Um, you just do not. So he writes very florid descriptions um, of the pain for those of us that are going to miss out on these experiences. Um, <laughs> his descriptions, I think, as a, as a doctor, show a true understanding of the concept of pain, which we're, we're taught about quite extensively in medical school. It's not as simple as you think. Um, it's actually got a WHO definition, um, and it's defined technically um, as an unpleasant sensory or emotional, I want to you know, really emphasise the emotion, emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So in actual fact, Schmidt, because this is serious work and we're just making fun of it here, but in the serious side of it, he gives a range, um, like a good scientist, to account for the differences in the pain experienced um, at different sting sites on the body and also with differing amounts of venom that are delivered because even stinging insects actually have bad days, um, so it doesn't always hurt as much. Um, so I'm going to give you some examples just to, to get a feeling for, for the type of um, things that he's written. Uh, so the sweat bee, this is a one on the scale, um, and it's a short, short duration of pain. And he describes this in his words um, in his paper as, Light, ephemeral, almost fruity. <laughs> As if a tiny spark has singed a single hair on your arm. The honeybee, remember I've said that's a two. Um, like a match head that flips off and burns onto your skin. <laughs> the bald-faced hornet is another two. Rich, hearty, slightly crunchy. <laughs> Similar to getting your hand mashed in a revolving door. <laughs> The paper wasp is a three, um, caustic and burning, distinctly bitter aftertaste. 
like spilling a beaker of hydrochloric acid on a paper cut. <laughs> and now we're going to up the ante to the tarantula horcross for one of those special things, scores of four, um, blinding, fierce, shockingly electric. A running hairdryer has been dropped into your bubble bath. <laughs> And then the bullet ant, and this is so named because it actually feels like a bullet apparently ripping through your skin if you're um, stung by this thing. So this is another four. Pure, intense, brilliant pain, like fire walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch rusty nail in your heel. <laughs> Lasts for 12 to 24 hours. And he describes being stung by one of these, and it's hilarious. He, he started to tremble violently. <laughs> And, and then, he, then when that subsided, he went back and started digging up the nest again. <laughs> got stung three more times. And then apparently he went to a pub and got drunk. <laughs> so why is he being attacked so much by the Hymenoptera? This is the insect order of the ants, bees and wasps. Well, apparently he's not doing it deliberately, as I've said, and that's what just fascinates me. They hate him. And, what, what's amazing is that their nervous systems are wired in such a way that they're intrinsically incapable of hate. So <laughs> those that work with animals that attack um, generally practice avoidance methods. Um, and to his credit, I think Schmidt's really trying here. Um, there's one account of how he actually put on a beekeeper's veil um, and in an attempt to protect himself, and he climbed a tree that was hanging over a gorge, um, as you do, to collect the nests of a social wasp species that was found in the, the cloud forest of Costa Rica, which sounds very beautiful, um, but wasn't. So apparently, <laughs> apparently, while he was hanging upside down, these wasps actually squirted, so they couldn't get him through the veil, but they squirted venom into his eyes <laughs> from a distance of four inches. Um, and he was quoted as saying, there I was, 10 feet up a tree, holding a bag of live wasps in one hand, basically blinded with pain. But the reason I really admire this guy so much, he actually got down the tree with the nest. <laughs> so he did the business. So people who work with dangerous animals um, also tend to know, they develop a, a good knowledge of, of the triggers of the particular animal um, and its unique body language and evolution's um, really, really crafted a fine set of warnings that, that um, most people get, um, most animals get, that tell you when you're actually pissing off a particular species. And most of us can read this, but he can't. So Schmidt's, <laughs> so Schmidt's often collecting the hives of social insects, and this is one trigger um, that's really going to provoke them, um, that's getting them right in the heart. So these species are just huge, some of them. Um, They've got bright colours, lots of body language. They're clearly saying, just don't touch me, don't go near my nest, but he does it anyway. And that's another reason I've really chosen to speak about this guy. I really admire him. He just keeps on going like the Terminator. <laughs> He's been quoted as saying that he doesn't care about being stung because he knows it's not going to affect him much or for long. So it's ironic, I think, that some of his work setting out to examine the deterrent effect of stings because the message has clearly been lost on him, whereas the rest of us who aren't experts at all have seemingly developed a better understanding of the concept with only scale two things like the, the honeybee, um, so maybe we're smarter. But the, the work's inspired others, you'll be pleased to know. Um, so Christopher Starr from um, the University of Georgia 
produced his own pain scale back in 1985, which was published in the Journal of Entomological Science. Um, and he was using personal communications from Schmidt, so I think they must have found each other in the corner at a party somewhere. <laughs> Just quite, hey, me too. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> as you do. Um, so this paper really features some sage pieces of advice that I just love. And Starr tells us that reports, um, that is of stings, should not come from people who are rarely stung. And this is to avoid, in his words, mixing pain with novelty. <laughs> and then comes this gem. He says that reports on stings that are received through free attack by the insect are preferable to those deliberately induced by holding her, because it's always the female, just about always, um, holding her between the fingers or against the skin. So don't force this, ladies and gentlemen. He then adds, he then adds that we're not always so fortunate, though, as to be attacked by those species of special interest. <laughs> what a weirdo. So, <laughs> then there's also Michael Smith of Cornell University, um, who just this very year, so this is breaking science, ladies and gentlemen, he used himself as the subject to determine um, whether there's variation in the pain of bee stings. So he standardised his species and he tested it across 25 different body sites. And did you think the first thing that I thought, oh, does that include, and yes, it did. So the top... <laughs> so the... I, I rushed straight to the method section. I was like, oh, God, you didn't. And he did. So apparently his PhD supervisor talked him out of using the eyeball, um, but everything else was fair game. So the top three, um, you'll be surprised. <laughs> the nostril, one, number one place, the upper lip and the penis shaft, and I'll read that again <laughs> for the men. The scrotum apparently, not so bad, so that's okay. <laughs> and I had to look up photographs of this guy on the internet and he... <laughs> so surprisingly serene. <laughs> he's sitting there at the microscope just looking like he's just like, oh, no, really normal, but he's not. <laughs> so the methods of his papers say that, um, and this is really interesting because I'm interested in self-experimentation. I'm quoting from the methods here. Cornell University's Human Research Protection Program does not have a policy regarding research self-experimentation. Better get onto that. So this, <laughs> this research was not subject to review from their offices. There you go, loophole. The methods <laughs> do not conflict with the Helsinki, Helsinki Declaration of 1975, revised in 1983. The author was the only person stung, what a shame, and aware of all associated risks therein, gave his consent, of course he did, and he's aware that these results will be made public like tonight. So. <laughs> In the meantime, I wish J.O. Schmidt and all of his um, interesting friends very well, and I fervently hope that he continues to hide his work effectively from the prying eyes of the OH&S committee at his institution, because <laughs> we all know how easy it is to freak those people out. So <laughs> thank you very much for listening.